Anyway, Father, as everybody's agreeing with me, we come before you in the name of Jesus through his blood. I pray, Lord, for this sermon because it is so important. In this series that I'm doing on revival preparation, I feel like this is extremely important that we deal with all these things and people need to really make sure that you hear all these sermons in this series. And Lord, I pray that you would use these to help us to really get ready for what's coming. And tonight will be um, you know, preparation regarding the supernatural and just new levels of God's presence and power and what that's going to look like. But Lord, I pray tonight as I speak this that you'll come my lip on me, Lord, and speak through me. Lord, we bind anything of the enemy that's trying to hinder and resist this word or what God's wanting to do. Lord, I'm asking you to send forth your mighty angels to clear that out. For the Bible promises us that if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he'll flee. And that none of this resistance will, will be um, able to, to be successful whatsoever in any way. Lord, I thank you for your word that you promise that as your word goes forth, it will go forth and accomplish everything you sent it forth to do. And Lord, I ask you to anoint me and Lord, clothe me with your power and come upon me and speak through me your words of life and let everything be spoken tonight that needs to be spoken and let it be as living seeds sown in a good fertile soul of hearts and minds and lives that are prepared by the Holy Spirit and then watered by the Spirit of God to take root, grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Allow, Lord, the light of your truth to shine, dispel all the darkness, lies, evil, and deception and bring life and truth and revelation. Let, um, let your word be a mighty hammer that's going to break down every stronghold and a sword that cuts away what needs to go. Let there be the washing of the water of the word. But let your light shine. That's the thing. The word of, go the, word of the Lord is the light. Let it shine and dispel all those darkness, all the lies, all the deception, all the ungodly type religious spirits, things like that. And just dispel that and bring life and truth and revelation. We commit it unto you and we thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering these prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen. We good to go with everything? Okay. All right. Well, I think you guys are going to like some of these stories tonight. I love the power of God. I love reading about revival. And as I've been doing this series on revival preparation, I really encourage you. I believe people have heard the last two sermons I did, but make sure that you hear them. Even if you haven't, if you missed, go back and listen to them. And I thought this was going to be the last one, but I think I'm going to do at least one, maybe two more and just cover everything um, if the Lord wants me to I kind of feel maybe next week I'll deal with about the spiritual warfare that comes against revival but how many know these things are important to know we, we need to know going into it and anyway so this this sermon I'm dealing with the power of God the presence of God coming down and in previous the last two sermons I did just a quick recap make sure that we're willing to stand up for the Lord when the Lord comes with great power and things start happening and the, the religious Pharisees and Sadducees of this day get stirred up and they begin to criticize, they begin to oppose the move of God, they begin to say things, we're going to have to be willing to stand up and, and go forward with God. It doesn't matter what people think, we're living to please the Lord, not people. And we've got to be willing to stand up for the Lord. In the second sermon I did, We've got to make sure that we're not going to get offended and end up getting bitter or lifted up in pride or rebellious, as some have done. And I believe that you'll see in this sermon, as I deal with this, that not everybody's going to go as deep as what I and many of you want to go in the Lord. Not everybody's going to want to go there. And so... Just make sure that you're willing to change. 
I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to help me with this because I'm a little out of my element, just being honest. I'm going to read stories, and I'm just going for it. Normally, I'm very much with you guys, very much a teacher. And so this is a little bit different for me. But I want you in your mind's eye for a moment. Actually, we have a picture here of the tabernacle, but those that are either live streaming or are listening to this, you'll have to just imagine this, or maybe if, you, if you're at a computer, you can Google the tabernacle Moses. But I want you to picture for a moment the, the tabernacle Moses, and think of it like this. You look at a large football field. It's a huge rectangle. Now, the tabernacle Moses wasn't that big. It was about half that size, okay? But just to give you kind of an idea that the outer court was big. I mean, you could fit a lot of people there. And the outer court had to do with the blood and it had to do with the water. And so you're dealing with salvation, water baptism. You're dealing with the milk of the word. You're dealing with a level that's really low level. Remember Jesus talking about 30, 60, 100 fold? You're dealing with 30 fold. Um, but many people are at that level. But when you go into the holy place, you leave the natural sunlight. You get out of that really large, spacious place. Now... You're going to go past that first veil. There's five pillars. You go past that. Now you're enclosed inside a tent. And the only light in there is the light of the lampstand. And the thing is small. It's around uh, 20 cubits by 10 cubits. So that's around 30 feet by 15 feet. So you're looking at approximately, I'm just trying to give people an idea, okay? approximately maybe like a spare bedroom in a house or something it's not very big and this is the place where the priests that went in here only the high the yeah the high priest those that were of that priestly order not just the high priest but those that were koanim they were the only ones that could go in there and you can see the priestly garments back behind me but if you want to um, google those garments but they had to have that blue tunic, which represents the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Remember the bells and pomegranates are dangling at the bottom? And it was those bells, it's the gifts. And so what this represents now, what Derek Prince said, he said the introduction to the supernatural life in Christianity is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys have experienced the baptism? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're now leaving the 30-fold. You're leaving milk. You're leaving the... Um, the realm where people just talk about salvation. <clears throat> now you're going deeper. And it's the light of the lampstand. Now you're getting meat of the word. You're getting revelation. The gifts are in operation. There's, there's now laying hands on the sick and they're healed. Like the bread of presence there that represents, you know, the bread of healing that by Christ stripes were healed. And, and you're seeing deliverance. You're seeing the power of God. This would be... Um, 60 fold if you will but it, it also is like the spirit filled life people that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit there's fewer people just like the outer court's big now this is smaller there's fewer that are going to go in there but you still haven't gotten the Holy of Holies and now as you offer up that incense of praise and worship prayer and intercession now God begins to call us to go deep into the Holy of Holies and that is a place that's only 10 cubits by 10 cubits. You're looking like 15 feet square. This is a small location. 
but there's nothing in there to light this place up. I'll give you an example of how small the Holy of Holies is. You guys ever been like in an elevator that's one of those really large elevators that they can um, do cargo like commercial elevators? Maybe 15 feet or so. That's what you're looking at. This is not big. And there was no light in there. There was just the ark. Because when the high priest would go in once a year, the glory of the Lord would light it up. It's the glory. And so my point is, is there's a lot of people at that 30-fold level. There's a lot of people sitting around talking about how they were saved. And they're on the milk of the word. That's all they know. But there's a lot less people that are going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, begin to function in the gifts, get clothed with power, and begin to believe God for some things. This is the holy place. This is where revelation is. But there's a, even fewer people that are going to go into the Holy of Holies. And you know what that is? Those are revival people. Those are those that are really, truly believing for Book of Acts Christianity. That actually have the nerve to believe that God really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That actually the whole Bible really is true. And that if Peter's shadow was healing the sick, there's no reason why we can't see that today. If the early church saw the dead raised, there's no reason why we shouldn't see it today. And they believe God for, for the fullness of what he's wanting to do. So I'm trying to kind of build here on something, and I think the stories will stir you up as well as far as your faith and hunger. But God's heart. You know, there's the name of God. I'm just going to give you an introduction here. The name of God, you see there the Hebrew script, okay? The yud heh vav -Hey, you read from the right to the left. And I've said this before, I'm going to go real quick with it, but the Yud in, the, um, in Hebrew is what we would have the letter Y. And it's the beginning of the name like Jerusalem, okay, and Israel. And so the, the Yud in Hebrew, there's always a picture that goes with the letter. And so the picture is an arm. And I remember in the Bible where, the, where it said that God would bear his arm. And I remember the Bible talking about the arm of God's salvation. Now I want you to picture somebody that fell off a boat or something and they're drowning. And you have a heart for them and you are going to roll up your sleeve and you're going to reach your, your bare arm down where they're at and grab them and help pull them to safety. You're going to save them. And that's the picture of God that the father's in heaven but he released his son the arm of salvation he's reaching down to the earth and he's trying to pull people to him it's the arm of salvation it's christ and it's interesting because even in the name of god you understand this is the name yahweh this is the name of almighty god that even in his name the h there the hey is the picture this is literally in the hebrew the picture is a guy standing there with his arms up trying to get your attention. Like, hey, look at me. Behold. And then that little letter there, the Vav, which is just a straight up and down line, is the V or the W. And you know what it is in Hebrew? It's a nail or a tent peg. That's the picture. So even in the name of God, his name, 
Anybody that knows Hebrew, this is definitely shouting to the Jewish people, please behold the nail in my arm of salvation. You couldn't have a better picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a name. And the name Yahweh comes from a root that is um, from him everything comes into being. So you see the creator the one who gives life but also I, I read where someone was doing a study on the name Yahweh and he talked about how it also implies God's presence the loving presence of God we see God as being in the Bible always a male authority figure don't we he's considered a father he's a righteous judge he's God Almighty he's awesome powerful but yet and I believe there's something to this the, the Jewish people throughout history saw God that way there's no doubt about it but they also saw that there was like a gentle nurturing motherly loving aspect to God in this that God would allow his Shekinah that's the dwelling tabernacling presence of God remember God told Moses have them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them and that's where that cloud of his presence came down his fire came down among them and the Jewish people saw that as like a a mothering a nurturing aspect of God that his presence was there to heal them to love on them to minister to them to protect them from their enemies it was his tabernacling presence his in Hebrew the Shekinah the the glory that tabernacles the reason why it's called the Shekinah because it means it comes from a root word Shekinah which means to dwell so it's one thing to have a good service here and there it's another thing to have an abiding presence of God that doesn't leave and so the Jewish people understood that God was almighty God all-powerful the creator of all things the one true God but he also had a dimension of himself that was very loving and nurturing that he was willing to put his, his presence among his people and take care of them, provide for them, protect them. All right, I'm going somewhere with all this. See, God is wanting so desperately. I, I hope that if, if you've gotten anything out of my ministry since you've sat under it, I hope that you get this. God wants his presence with us. I can't tell you how much God loves us and wants his presence to tabernacle among us and dwell. When God created man in the garden, it was for the purpose of having a family. He had angels that were maids and butlers. He had servants. He wanted a family. And the book of Psalms says God puts the lonely in families. And I'm telling you that there was a loneliness, there was a longing in God to have a family. So he creates humanity. But what does the Bible say? Every day he would come down and walk among them. And God wants his abiding presence to be in our lives. And I'm sharing all this for a reason. See, in the Azusa Street Revival, and as I go, I'm just going to kind of flow with this. But in the Azusa Street Revival, you guys know this because I've taught so much on revival stories. Some of this will be, uh, you know, just a recap. But during that revival, it was so common for the presence of God. The people that were there said that all the time, all the time they had made a Sousa it became a place of continual worship and prayer and the glory of the Lord tabernacled there to where people could literally see on the floor you guys 
ever been out at night and you know the moon's out and you can just see maybe just a light fog along the ground okay we don't have a whole lot of that here in texas but in other parts of our nation it's more common but there was like a light fog of the of the cloud of god's glory that was on the ground and they said when they would begin to worship and pray in tongues and they unified and they began to worship the lord they said that glory would come up off the floor and it would fill the whole room and they said it was interesting to be in because when that cloud was there you know when you're in smoke or fog you can do like this with your hand and it'll move it and they said that they'd worship and they would move but the the cloud would not move with their hand and so you know one person said they brought a jar and they were going to capture some of it and they went outside and it wasn't in the, in the jar because you're dealing with the presence of god not a literal cloud and they said that this multiple times this happened where the Sousa street mission there was literally flames of fire that consumed the building and went up above it and there was like a cloud and people non-christian people drove by and literally thought the building was on fire so they call the fire department this is true it's verified and it's ha it happened multiple times the fire department got there to find out that it was just the glory there was no real fire but people could see it my point is that glory that you see there tabernacled um, in the tabernacle of Moses that God is wanting that in our midst so man lived in paradise and God's manifest presence clothed him no doubt the Shekinah was among them and God himself came down and walked with them daily and so Adam and Eve when God created them in Psalms 104 I believe off the top of my head the Bible says that God wraps himself with light as a garment the light has to do with the glory okay so God wraps himself with light as a glory that's why in the Old Testament since some people don't understand they say why did God say let there be light but then later on you read and he created the sun moon and stars and all that it's because he wasn't dealing with natural light he was dealing with his glory in the beginning okay there was the glory of the Lord that's what it's dealing with so he wraps himself with light so it stands to reason that if Adam and Eve were in the garden and the Bible says they were naked okay and they weren't ashamed or anything like that and the word for naked is the Hebrew word arom a-r-o-m and then when they sinned they ate the fruit it says they realized they were naked and the naked word there is e-r-o-m arom and that means completely nude arom just means partially nude it's like what happened because when God created them in his image just as God wraps himself with light as a garment there was some kind of a wrapping of the glory that enveloped them you remember when Moses came down off the mountain and his face was shining I believe with all my heart that Adam and Eve had that all the time they had some kind of a glory that wrapped them they were physically naked but the presence of God wrapped them and there was a shining and whenever they ate of the fruit what does the Bible say all have sinned and fall short of the glory when they sinned, the glory left and then they arom they were completely naked and they were ashamed and they wanted to cover themselves there's something about the presence of God tabernacling in our midst that brings security you feel safe even if other things are going on when his glory is really strong and present you feel like everything's going to be okay God's with us and see when that lifted off them that's the first time that they ever knew the absence of that glory and it scared them 
and they ran off and they, they hid from God. They began to sow little fig leaves and wrap up and try to cover that, their nakedness. All right, so I'm sharing all this to build where I'm going. So there's a law of first reference in the Bible. And the first time that we read about a cherub was in the Garden of Eden. So let's talk a little bit about the cherubim here. Okay, the im in Hebrew means plural, so more than one, okay? And so the cherub, the Bible says when man sinned, now they're in a fallen state. They have a sin nature in their body. And because of that, they're in a process of dying. God said the day you eat it, you'll die. They did, they died spiritually. Remember, the glory left them. There was something spiritually that died. And then their soul began to erode because of sin and ultimately their body died. And so in that fallen condition, God said they cannot keep coming into the Garden of Eden and eating the Tree of Life because if they do, they'll live forever in a fallen state. And so he put a cherub there with a flaming sword to guard the entrance where they couldn't get back into the Garden of Eden to eat the Tree of Life. And so this is the law of first reference. You see the cherubim were guardians of God's presence and his life. Now, think about the ark. That's the picture I have there. And the ark of the covenant is a picture of God's throne. And how many knows if you've studied the Bible, you see in Ezekiel that it talks about those cherubim and it's around the throne of God. Remember that? And in the book of Revelation, there were four living creatures. It had like a face of a man and an ox and all that. Remember that? All right, this is the cherubim. And so God, whenever he told Moses to build the ark, it's a picture and type of his throne. And what was connected to the ark, it was two cherubim facing each other. Where God would sit in the middle and the two cherubim would be facing him on each side. They were guardians. I'm trying to show you they're guardians of his presence and his holiness. And even in the tabernacle of Moses, when you went into the holy place and you looked in front of you, there's the holy of holies in front of you and it has that golden ark of the incense there. But what separated you from where you were from the holy of holies was a veil and that veil had cherubim interwoven into it. And God was saying, the cherubim are guardians of my presence and my holiness. Now here's something that scholars have thought about and I think there might be something to this that the cherubim may have to do with the throne of God to the degree that possibly, you remember reading that in Ezekiel with the wheel within the wheel and he saw that, that chariot up there and it was like the throne of God moving across. Well anyway, scholars have thought well maybe the cherubim somehow they interlock themselves around and they literally create like with their arms or something they create a throne that God sits on and possibly because a lot of people don't know this but the Bible says about Lucifer that he was an anointed cherub that fell Satan was one of these let you think about it for a moment that he was around the ark he was around the throne the Bible says he walked among the fiery stones. He was the anointed cherub that covered. And this is what scholars have wondered. Could it be that the cherubim would interlock themselves around and create a throne for God? 
and that Lucifer was like, you know how a throne might have like a really tall back to a chair, like a high back chair? And maybe Lucifer was the high back chair, if you will, the back part that was lifted up and he was the anointed cherub that covered and he would lead from that place heaven in worship to God. That's how close he was to the throne of God. Yet, he began to see how beautiful he was. He got lifted up with pride. And the next thing you know, he leads a rebellion against God. So the cherubim have to do with the throne of God. They're guardians of his presence. Let me tell you something. I'm going somewhere with all of this. It's going to make sense as I go. But the angels of the Lord help to bring God's people into his awesome presence, but they also help to keep the wrong people out. Some people may not want to hear that, but that's the truth. Because not everybody that's outer court people even want to go into the Holy of Holies. The outer court people, some of them, when God shows up, they'll sit back and mock it. They'll mock the people. They'll call the revival, it's of the devil, and they'll persecute it. And there they are sitting in the outer court, drinking milk of the word, and they don't even know the presence of God. And they're the foolish virgins, y'all hear me? They're the foolish virgins that don't know the difference between the Holy Spirit and a demon that are not going to have enough oil when the bridegroom comes. Hello. And the Bible says in Isaiah 63 verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And look at this, and the angel of his presence saved them. The word save there. Let me give you another nugget real quick. The word save, you guys familiar with the Greek word sozo? All right. Greek word sozo means save, heal, deliver, protect, preserve, prosper, make to do well. It wraps up everything that Jesus paid for at Calvary in one word. Okay? And it's the Greek word save. The counterpart to that in the Old Testament is the word yasha. And it means save, heal, deliver, protect, preserve, posture, make to do well, all of that. And it's from that root word yasha that we get the word Yeshua, which means salvation, which is the name of our Lord. And so when it's saying here the angel of God's presence will save them, it's the word yasha. The angels of God's presence will help bring breakthrough. And so I'm not going to dwell too much on angels. Those that know me know that I don't put a big emphasis on it, but it is important because they do play a role that we know something about them. Let me give you some quick scriptures. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him to deliver them. The angels of God's presence will yasha us. In fact, Hebrews says that they are ministering spirits sent to minister unto us as heirs of salvation. And Jesus, after he was tempted by the devil and fasted and went through all that warfare, the Bible said angels came and ministered to him. And if the Son of God needed angelic ministry, I'm pretty sure you and I need it. And the Bible says the angels for secret place dwellers in Psalm 91 will accompany us in all of our ways. They'll bear us up in their hands, lest we dash our foot against a stone. The Bible says that those that keep Passover, and I believe that's a reference to the communion table too, God said, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I'll send my terror in front of you. You know what the terror of God going in front of you is? The angels. So I'm just trying to show you that they're active in our lives. I don't major on it. I've seen several and I know they're around and I sense them many times when I pray for people and things like that. But I don't draw a lot of attention to angels. Why? Because Jesus needs all the attention. And they want that too. They want the Lord getting all the attention. 
in the Toronto Revival, there was a man, I'm going to tell stories as I go, there was a man that was at the Great Revival in Toronto. It was an awesome move of God. Of course, like any move of God that's ever happened, there's a lot of controversy and confusion and a lot of persecution against him, a lot of gossip and stuff that's not true. And I've been there, and it's a, it's a powerful move of God. Anyway, this man was there worshiping the Lord, and I heard him tell this testimony when I was there in January 2014. I actually heard the man tell this story. He said during the revival, he was worshiping the Lord, and Sandy might remember this, that he said he looked to his left, and he said there was this huge angel just standing there. And, I mean, what do you do? I mean, the, the thing's standing right next to him, so it kind of just took him by surprise that he saw an angel in the first place, but... You know, there it is, just standing next to him. And he said that, you know, just being kind of shocked, he just said something to the angel. He said something like, um, who are you or what are you doing, you know? And he said that angel could not care less that I was standing there. He said he had no interest in me whatsoever. Did It seemed like he didn't want to even acknowledge my presence. And he said, but I did say, what are you doing here? And the angel said, I'm a guardian of his presence and then looked away from him like he was focused on an assignment kind of like quit bugging me I'm, I'm busy that's the that's the impression the guy had you know I'm busy and he's a guardian of the presence I'm trying to share some things tonight because I believe that God's wanting to do this in river of life and in many other places but as revival comes and heavens open and God comes in a much greater way than we've known things will be a lot different than what people realize. I'm trying to get you ready for it. I'm trying to get people ready that you're going to have to stand up for the Lord in the midst of great persecution. And some people can't handle that. They're pacifists. They're kind of wimpy. And when it comes, they just, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. Listen, I'm just going to say it. I'm perfectly fine with the fact that there's some people out there that probably hate me. Um, they definitely don't like me. And my wife will tell you, last night, I slept good. I, I really trust me when I tell you I couldn't care less because God doesn't want me worrying about what they think he wants me concerned about what he thinks and when I die I'm gonna stand before the Lord not them so in God's presence the supernatural comes down in an awesome way healings and miracles deliverances just the power of God exploding but the cherubim these type of angels I'm not necessarily saying cherubim per se but angels of God's presence will help to bring the breakthroughs. They will help God's people get the breakthroughs to go into revival. And they're guardians of his presence. And they'll also help keep away the wrong people. Not everybody that comes to church needs to stay. I'll talk about that more next week. All right. So let me read you some things. This is where I'm just going to kind of go with the flow, all right? So I'm pulling up my notes here. All right. So this man by the name of James Maloney, he was a um, powerful man of God, and we, we actually got to see him not that long ago minister, and he really ministers in a deep, deep realm of the presence of God. And after I share some of this, I have to go over this like a cursory view. I just have to skim over it. Um, but anyway, he prophesied. He really felt back years ago, he was a part of a ministry called 
the golden candlestick, which nobody knows of. It's kind of like the Moravian revival. Not too many people have even heard of what happened with the Moravians. Well, the golden candlestick was similar to this. It was in 1948-1950 time frame. And it's kind of one of those ministries that nobody knows about, but was extremely powerful. And as I read some of this, it's probably going to shock you, some of the things that they experienced with God. But anyway, he was a young man and was really impacted by their ministry. And this is what he said here. He felt that this would start beginning to happen in 2015. And I'm sharing prophecies tonight. Is that okay? And sharing revival stories. But he said the lady's name was Frances Metcalf that oversaw this ministry. And he said before she passed away. Now this was a, a prophecy by James Maloney. You could Google this. It's on the Elijah list. And it's called the Dove Company. I'm only going to share a little bit of it. So if you want the whole thing. But it says, before she passed away, she shared with me a vision she had received from the Lord himself. And I mean a literal face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord, not just a prophecy. Wherein he specifically called this remnant of people who would arise in the end times. Now, I want you to notice the word remnant. Everybody get that? Remnant and end times. That the Lord called them the Dove Company. Francis talked about these concepts in her teachings. And after she had shared the vision with me, I felt that it was definitely of the Lord. So what is the Dove Company? In simplest term, it's a group of people in the body of Christ who are pressing in to be used by the Lord as a vehicle for expression and demonstration. In other words, they have an encounter with him, and then they, they release that encounter in the earth to others. Does that make sense? That's about as basic as you can say it. And to sum up this prophecy, because if I read the whole thing, it would you know, take a while. But he said that there's a group of people, I want y'all to hear me. There's a group of people in the earth that are God's remnant. There's always been a remnant. In the days of Noah, even though the whole earth was polluted, God still had Noah in his family. They were his remnant. In the days of Jezebel, when the nation went whoring after Baal, God still told Elijah, I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal, nor kissed him in their mind he's still a remnant down through the church ages when the catholic church rose to power and it was it's a cult i'm not calling it the the church but the catholic uh, roman system rose to power they persecuted they went after to burn at the stake to imprison torture and kill any true christians yet throughout those dark ages they were still a remnant and many of you have heard of Wycliffe and his followers they were called the lollards there was other little groups of people called the Albigenses and Waldenses that down through history, they were true Christians that knew the Lord. The Catholic Church wanted to kill them, but they still were God's remnant in the earth. And so even on, you know, more in modern times, we see that God always has a remnant. He has a group of people that are willing and hungry to go deeper than other people. And so in this prophecy about the Dove Company, he said the single greatest aspect of them is that the dying to self, being crucified with Christ. It's not all, no longer I who live, but Christ living through me. And their life is hid with Christ. They don't want to be seen. They want the Lord to be seen. Let me tell you something in revival. You better make sure your motives are pure about bringing the Lord glory and not yourself. Also, he said that they're a generation prepared for the manifest presence of God. They're going to be the ones that are wanting to go into the Holy of Holies. And not everybody even wants to go there. He also said that they would see special miracles. And then he said, well, aren't all miracles special? 
But think about Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul had his greatest revival. It said that um, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and they were healed and demons left people. It was extraordinary miracles. And he said that he saw, that she saw, that in the last days that there would be a group of people that would be God's remnant in the earth. They were not going to be outer court people and they were not going to be content even being holy place people. They wanted to be holy of holies people. And they had an encounter with God that was so powerful and they carried his presence in such a way that God did extraordinary miracles through them. Is it okay I just share these things tonight? I'm, I, this really is, is something that burns in me because I believe that God has called us for this. We're living in the latter days. Now I'm not predicting the day nor time because I have no idea when the Lord's coming. He could come tomorrow. But it'll surprise me if we have very much longer. I'm talking like, you know, less than two decades. So we've got a lot to do in a short amount of time. So you know what God's going to do? He's going to come down and help us. I'm serious. I'm serious. And I remember back around 2003 or 2004, I went down to Finland to minister. Steve Hill, I was, I was a part of his ministry, and I was uh, you know, serving there. I was in, you know, he... I was, um, had my own ministry, but he really endorsed that and was a wonderful support to me, and it meant a lot to me. Anyway, he had sent me and some others. We had went to Finland on his behalf, and man, heaven came down. Let me tell you, it was powerful. Um, but anyway, it was during that time, Rick Joyner had been given revelation in the late 90s. Remember the revivals of the 90s, okay? In the late 90s, he was getting this revelation, and he began to document it, and then he put it in a book he wrote called The Apostolic Ministry, I believe is the name of it. Anyway, I got the book, and I remember because I, was, I read the book, and I took it with me when I was in Finland to read in my spare time between meetings, and this really burned in me because I knew it was not only from God, I felt very strongly it's for us in River of Life. I want you to hear some of this because this will make a lot of sense for people that wonder what in the world is River of Life. Well, here we go. So in recent years, he said a number of great moves of God. He's talking about in the 90s. In recent years, a number of great moves of God have been quite different from each other, even though they all work together to prepare us for what's coming. There will be many more breaking out in various places. It's all, I don't have it in the notes, so just hear me. Those who are going to be the most prepared for what's coming are those that had the humility and the wisdom to go visit these moves of God, like Brownsville and Toronto, etc. For those who are gaining vision and perspective from the Holy Spirit, these different moves of God will start to both create a pattern and a trail that will become increasingly clear. In speaking of these movements, I'm not only talking about Brownsville and Toronto, though these are important, but others have occurred in Asia. South and Central America, Africa, Eastern Europe, and South Pacific, etc. The greatest fires of revival are going to break out and be sustained. Please hear me when I read this because I believe these are really from the Lord, these prophecies. The greatest fires of revival are going to break out and be sustained in places where many different coals from the fire have been brought together from previous moves of God to be in the mainstream of what the Lord is doing in the earth. We must excel more and more at crossing national 
and denominational barriers for the interchange or the cross-pollination of the Spirit. Those who continue in isolation will drift further and further from the river of life the Lord is now bringing forth in the earth. Studying church history is one way that we honor our spiritual fathers and mothers and submit to the body of Christ that has been forming since the day of Pentecost. And visiting moves of God that arise with humility and a teachable spirit is another way we submit to the body of Christ. Now let me get to this. For the last few years, I have been given visions of very, a very unique and quite small spiritual force that is being prepared in different places around the world. Those who are part of this force have the most fierce resolution in their purpose that I've ever witnessed. In fact, whenever I think of them, that's what comes to mind. They have an uncompromising devotion to the truth and integrity. Even though they tend to be severe, they are also driven by love for God and his people. They may be the most supernaturally powerful people who have ever walked the earth at one time. These will be known as his messengers of power. And they are walking coals of fire from the very throne room of God who will help set off revival and moves of God where they go. These messengers of power presently alive. Now listen, this is just different words describing the same thing. James Maloney said Francis Metcalf got this back in what the 50s. She had a face-to-face -face encounter with God. And he told her, Jesus told her, said, listen, in the last days there will arise a remnant. Whew, and I felt that. And they'll be my dove company. And they'll carry my presence. And she shared that with James before she died. And Rick is saying the same thing here. He's saying in these latter days, there's going to be messengers of power that arise. They're presently alive. Now listen, they say the messengers of power are presently alive and are scattered all over the earth. It's hard to find more than one or a handful together in one place at one time, even though they will begin to congregate together. Even so, a typical congregation that just has two of these at this present time are exceptional. Now listen to this. Many congregations cannot stand the fire that is coming off them and will either drive them out of their midst or already have driven them out of their midst because they can't stand the fire that's coming off of them. Now, hold on, there's more to this. In the same way, they are having a hard time fitting in with church in this present state. How many of you guys have felt like you have a hard time fitting into the typical church? It's like... The, now, they're marching to the beat of a different drum, a different sound. The enemy will try to take advantage of this to try to make them bitter or rebellious as he knows that this is the most effective way to disqualify them from their purpose. Even though they resist becoming bitter or rebellious, most of them are far too focused and too serious to fit into the typical church life as it is at this time. Because of this, the Lord is now preparing places for them where they, where they can join together with others that have a similar calling, and these will become God's special forces. If we understand them, unnecessary problems can be avoided. One of the most important tasks of the military special forces is to train other natives. All right. And he called this a spiritual delta force in here. Because if you know anything about the special forces in the military, the delta is like a, an elite force, but it's secret. Are y'all seeing a pattern here? You, you have a lot of people in the outer court. You have fewer people in the holy, of, holy place. But you have just a remnant 
that go into the Holy of Holies. These are those that will be the dove company, that will be the messengers of power. See, in the 80s, Rick was shown a vision where there was a, a tsunami wave that came through that was real powerful. It was revival. Of course, that was fulfilled in the 90s. But he saw that this wave came through. But there was a huge wave behind it that came in after him. And he said the first wave was going to prepare, but the second wave would be amazing. It would be awesome. And we haven't seen that second wave. Even during the Toronto revival, I think I showed you guys this clip where David Ruiz was hit by the power and he began to prophesy. But it, was, it even came out in the Toronto revival. They were, they were saying, this is just preparation. This isn't even it. There's a move of God that will come later that will be so much more powerful than what we're experiencing now. Everybody felt that the great revivals of the 90s was a preparation for what's coming. And when Dr. Cho prophesied, I believe it was 93, 94, he said that God spoke to him about America. He was crying out, Lord, are you finished with America? Is America reserved for judgment? What's going on? And, and the Lord woke him up and answered his prayer and said, no, I'm not done with America. He said, pull out a map. And he pointed at Pensacola and he said, I will begin in Pensacola and it'll burn like a match head. You ever strike a match and it just, just really bright. He said, it'll burn like a match head in Pensacola. He said, it'll move 50 miles west and it'll back up into Louisiana, back back up into Florida again in Pensacola. It'll go up the east coast and it'll go up the west coast. And when it gets up into that Pacific Northwest, he said, all of America will become ablaze in the fires of revival. And we saw it begin in Pensacola in 95. We saw it move 50 miles west at the Bay of the Holy Spirit revival. We've seen it move in the Louisiana outpouring and at Kingsway Church in Pensacola. There's revivals up the east coast. There's even some revivals up the west coast. I'm telling you that this is about to happen. America is about to be in the fires of revival. There's a great awakening that's about to happen. And Rick went on to say this, and I'll move off this. Some, some of those who are called to lead the greatest generation are already quite elderly, and they are going to be renewed. And there will be a powerful anointing on them to help renew the church. That the bride of Christ is without spot speaks of purity, but without wrinkles speaks of perpetual youthfulness. This youthful anointing is coming upon the church in a very supernatural way that even some of the elderly are going to grow younger in, in their physical bodies. Did y'all catch that? By the one who is able to quicken our mortal bodies. There's a prophecy that God is going to do that, and I have felt that God is going to do that. There's people that God's going to help them that their aging will reverse. So think about Abraham and Sarah. There was no way Sarah had a child without God touching her in this way. Her aging somehow went backward. Why would, a, why would an Egyptian pharaoh think she's so beautiful at the age of almost 100 or something? You know what I'm saying? Something happened there. But God's going to renew youth. All right. And the next one I wanted to share is about the golden candlestick. Now, these guys are really something. How many of you guys are hungry to go deeper? Not everybody is. I've been surprised over the years, Sandy will tell you the same thing, that not everybody is. And not everybody, once you start going deeper, it's like some people get left behind. 
Some people don't want to change. Some people don't want to repent. Some people just don't want to go deeper. And it's sad because the sword of the Lord comes. The next thing you know, they're gone. So anyway, this is important, though. I'm sharing this because I want people to really have like a stirring in you to begin to see things you've never seen before. Now, the Golden's Candlestick is, was a very small ministry, but as James describes it here in his book, um, I believe this book was called The Ladies of Gold or something like that, and it's part one if you want to read it. I'm just going to go over a brief synopsis here. But it says, The Golden Candlestick was started by a lady named Frances Metcalf in her late 30s to early 40s. She was the set person everyone gathered around her, not really as equals, but in recognizing her gifting, they rallied around her um, as a prophetess. And thus entered into her vision. She drew together a group of women from Elam Bible Institute who were all feeling the same push in the same direction. Namely, listen to this, they, were, they felt led to give up any aspirations for public ministry, and they were going to covenant themselves to the Lord for high praise and worship before his throne in return he was going to grant them unusual experiences of his presence and through their directed intercession birth many moves of god among the nations i don't think that i could even express how powerful this ministry was you guys realize the moravians people don't realize how much that affected okay the moravians were fleeing just like right now there's a civil war in syria and refugees are fleeing Syria. In the same way it was happening in Moravia, there was this, there was a warfare and people were fleeing. And there was a very wealthy man in a Germany area named Count Zinzendorf. And he had a lot of money at this huge estate. And he allowed the Moravians to come there and live on his estate. They were fleeing. And he met with them because there was a lot of bickering and fighting between them. And he said, let's come together and have a communion service. So they met together and they were taking the Lord's Supper. And the power of God hit that place so strong. It was unbelievable. Everybody in there was just transformed because the power of God that hit the place. Um, I don't know what all happened, but they talked about signs and wonders and everything else. But after that, there was a hunger in the Moravians. And there was a hunger in Zinzendorf. And he's, they said, we don't want to lose this presence of God. What do we do? And, and Zinzendorf said, look, we've got to keep the fire burning on the altar. We can't let it go out. So what they do? They instituted... Uh, worship and prayer what we would call harp and bowl today they institute this worship and prayer and they had different set times where it became 24 7 worship and prayer in their community this continued for a hundred years and people have a hard time believing that but it actually did happen and they had this heart for worship and prayer and because of that the presence of God sustained in their midst in an awesome way and out of the Moravians came missionaries. They went all over the world. In fact, some of them were on a boat where Wesley was. And Wesley, the boat was, you know, felt, it looked like it was going to sink. And Wesley's supposed to be a Christian. He's scared half to death. And he sees these Moravian missionaries over there just calm. And he said, what is wrong with you, man? We're going to die. And he's, he couldn't understand them. And they said, we have peace with God. We're ready if we die to go see Jesus. And he couldn't understand that. Because even though he, he called himself a Christian, he really just knew about the Lord, but he didn't really know the Lord. There's a difference. And the Moravians knew the Lord, and they led him to Christ. John Wesley, on a boat that they thought was going to sink. And John Wesley wrote in his diary, My heart was strangely warmed. This was the beginning of revival in his life. 
and Wesley comes back and he begins a group called the Holy Club and he, he had some guys he was going to college with that they began to pray and they took communion together and they said it was like the heavens unzipped and the glory of God just fell in their midst. But the, the Moravians, their prayer, I'm telling you, their prayers birthed the first great awakening. And Britain could have had a horrible revolution like the French Revolution. To this day, France is still a very atheistic, secular place because of the French Revolution. It was a bloody time. Britain could have had that, but yet, Britain saw a great revival through the Wesley brothers. And they brought that down to America. And you read about Edwards and the sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. Remember that. And, and his, his uh, son-in-law Brainerd who went to the Indians and how Whitfield traveled in an itinerant ministry and drew crowds. And it was a time of great revival, a great harvest of souls. It changed Britain and it changed America. We still talk about it. You know where it was birthed? With the Moravians in prayer and to this day the Moravians came I believe it's South Carolina but there's a place called Moravian Falls where they settled and that was a place that they began prayer and worship and prayer there in our nation so in the same way like the Moravians the golden candlestick was the same type of ministry he says some of these ladies had husbands and a few men were part of the fellowship but it was primarily women who made up the bulk of golden candlestick many of whom remained single in order to dedicate themselves to the ministry I think about this these people were willing to give up any type of public ministry whatsoever just to worship and pray and some of the women covenanted with the Lord that they were just going to remain single to totally devote themselves to prayer this is how serious this group was Frances had three children with her husband two of which he knew or at its, at its inception there was only around 20 members but later on at its height it had around 80 but it fluctuated between about 40 and 50. The meetings were usually held four, five, six days a week from around 6 to 7 p.m. until 1 or 2 in the morning. There were periods when some meetings would go day and night, but as members had families, most were typically held in the evenings. Quite realistically, these people covenanted together to form a private association, bowing themselves to the Lord's worship and intercession. The group moved to Southern California, and here in a moment, you're going to be surprised at some of the things that happened. This group moved to Southern California, and Francis wanted to build a home there that would be a sanctuary for the Golden Candlestick. She pulled out a map. Her finger fell on, I guess it's Idlewild, California. Does that sound right? All right, anyway. Anyway, it's a small place. I don't know if anybody even knows about it, really, but um, what was to be my hometown growing up, many of the jobs around Idlewild were construction field jobs in 1948 they built the home the basement served as a sanctuary and the ladies laid the first stones with their own hands there was a stone fireplace in the center of the sanctuary the entire place was lavished with royal colors of purple and gold and crimson and they wanted to make it as much like the tabernacle of Moses as they could many drapes and wall hangings and kingly covers or you know, kingly co colors covered the walls there was an altar where they gathered to take Holy Communion. I found out about this later. But it shocked me some of the revelation these people had in the 40s and 50s that churches even today don't have because they spent time with the Lord. But they understood the power of the communion table. The main piece of decoration was a golden menorah from whence their name came. I'm skipping down some of this. 
So they said that at this time they would come together. They did not sing traditional hymns. Their worship was spontaneous and led by the Holy Spirit. Francis would strum a zither, which I had to look that up. I mean, I didn't even know what that is. Some kind of stringed instrument. While everyone worshiped in tongues. And within a few minutes, now listen, this is where it gets really awesome. In a few minutes, and then worshiping in tongues, they were caught up in the Spirit. And the song of the Lord would begin to come forth. It was spontaneous. With different members contributing to the verses. He said it was the most amazing thing he'd ever seen. They were caught up in the spirit worshiping and one person would sing and then the next person sing the next line and it rhymed and it was beautiful and it was just this orchestrated thing by the Holy Spirit. The songs of deliverance came forth. They were just astounding, powerful. Songs of the bridegroom to the bride and vice versa. One part would sing the Lord's words and the other part would sing the bride's words. For Francis, the golden candlestick, it was important to celebrate the feast of the Lord not out of a sense of compulsion to the law but in reverence to the foreshadowing of the lord and his future bride to them everything pointed to the centrality of jesus christ the fulfillment of the law and his direct connection to his church they recognized the revelation of jesus in each of the feast rosh hashanah was important and vital to them leading up to yom kippur and the feast of tabernacles they place a high significance also on natural israel which understand this is 1948 1950 Israel was just a fledgling nation. Is anybody else astounded at this? Nobody had this type of revelation at this time. We have now the Hebrew roots are being restored back to the body. Thank God. But this was 1948, 1950. This was unheard of. This was because they were with the king. They were intimate with him. And out of that came revelation. Now here's why I really think this is neat. But anyway, she... It says, for several years prior to its adoption of the official flag of Israel, Francis had flown a blue and white shield of David, stating that the Lord had shown the flag to her. And when Israel was declared independent, she sent the design to the provisional council who adopted the flag in 1948. That's amazing. The golden candlestick was a conduit for hundreds of thousands of dollars to be funneled into the kingdom. They followed after the pattern of George Mueller and the support of numerous orphanages and schools. Anybody that knows about George Mueller, anybody heard about him? He had an orphanage and totally lived by faith. I mean, you have to understand that when you have all these kids and you have no money, and this was true, these type of things happened. I read it, it was the most amazing thing. They would sit down with their little kids with nothing on the table and they didn't have anything. And they would join hands and be praying with all these little orphans and they would ask the Lord for a meal. Next thing you know, somebody's knocking on the door that had brought them a cooked meal. And they'd come in and just start dishing it up on the table. Stuff like that happened all the time. Steve Hill told a funny story just to break the seriousness. He said that when they were in Teen Challenge, they didn't have any money either. And he was in this Teen Challenge program. And they had even run out of toilet paper. Okay, how many knows that's bad? Yeah. And so they were praying that God would help them out. And this true story said there was a knock on the door. And this guy was standing there. And he had a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> and he said, he said, man, he said, I don't know if I'm off or what. But he, he had his Bible in his other hand. He said, but I was at home. (laughs) 
And he said, I was sitting in my recliner, and I had my lamp on, I was reading my Bible, and I was just praying and just worshiping the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me, and you guys were, you know, hurting, and you needed some toilet paper. So I brought it. I said, I hope I'm not missing God here. And they said, no, brother, thank you. And they took the toilet paper. But it goes on to saying all things, the revelation of the bride of Christ was foremost in their experiences. The Golden Candlestick believe in evangelism. A lot of the following material came from, okay, from their transcendent experiences. I don't know, he goes on to say, I don't know of any other ministry that was blessed with the same level of rapture and translation similar to what Elijah and Philip experienced in the Bible. When I say that members, now listen to this. I'm sharing this because it's so extreme. Now, I want you to, to just have your faith kind of expanded here. He said, when I say that members were transported, he said, I mean physically, they disappeared. Now, I've been believing that for Ed when he's out of town working, all right? That Ed will just show up. It'll just, he'll just pop in. He's just here, right, like Philip. All right. He said they, were, they would disappear, and they were taken to other parts of the world for evangelistic campaigns. Are y'all hearing this? This is the best part of the story. Okay, they were taken to other parts of the world for evangelistic campaigns, sometimes for several days at a time. In these instances, they were supernaturally sustained either by the people they met or through angelic host. Often, the Spirit would translate them to another country so that they might gain strategy on how to intercede for that part of the world to combat the hindrances to the gospel. They would then bring back these reports to the group that would pray over them. In this way, I saw great moves of God that were birthed in other nations through their intercession. Tell me that's not awesome. They would simply wait on the Lord in high praise and worship, and if the Spirit didn't lead them to intercede, they didn't. They focus solely on worshiping the Lord. All of the earthly translations and rapture were separate from the translations to heaven, where many would return. Listen to this. Sometimes their sandals would have jewels in them that they didn't have before. Garments inset with jewels in them. Headdresses arrayed with living colors that they didn't have before. Articles of clothing that would be stitched with gold th thread, and I mean literally metal, not the color gold. They were regular occurrences with these ladies because they spent day and night in worship and prayer totally devoted to him in the secret place. It's not much of a stretch to say that they spent a lot of time in heaven. When Francis, speaking of seeing the stars, for example, she, did, she meant it from a, a, an element of rapture, not just with her imagination. He said, I recall seeing a door in their sanctuary, beautifully molded, emanating a golden hue. I assumed that the people walked through it and it led to another part of the house. Many years later, though, when I was walking through the house during the daytime with a lady named Marion who was a part of that ministry, I was stunned that the door wasn't there. And so I asked about it. And it was explained to me that the door was like a doorway to heaven. And it, 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 was, it had been provided by the Lord, and now it's gone. That's just crazy. Had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have asked to go along with them, or I would have asked to go along with them in these things. And so anyway, he said that, he said that Francis was kind of an unnerving person to know because she was so serious, and she had such a prophetic edge, and it, it felt like she could see right through you. 
She said, he said, as soon as everyone began singing many times in these meetings, the glory of God fell like a heavy fog. You guys remember reading this in the Bible? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't even stand to minister because of the cloud. See, when they would worship and sing in the spirit, the glory of God came in like a thick fog. It was overwhelming, and I could hear the people, but I couldn't see them. This sounds like a Sousa Street, doesn't it? It took a few minutes for my eyes to adjust to see the person next to me. The ceiling during these times had almost like a purple swirl like a cloud swirling around it out of the cloud one could often hear sounds it truly was an open heaven experience like Jacob's ladder there were numerous times that it was like the 24 elders like the angels were a part of the worship you could hear like angelic host worshiping and singing with them they said that they saw angels frequently that manifested. They would come in and, and you could see them in the worship as they were worshiping the Lord. Now all this is really, you know, sounds really crazy and radical and awesome and just amazing. But I'm sharing this because when you make God's house a house of worship and prayer and you really press into him like that, things are going to change. And this would not have been uncommon in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, I want you to think about for, for a minute, the church that Jesus planted. These are people that walked with Jesus, the disciples. Jesus told Nathaniel, you're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did that look like? What did they experience around him when he would minister I would personally assume that in really powerful meetings where Jesus was ministering and praying for people that they probably saw like a mist of the glory. I would assume that. They saw so many healings and creative miracles. They saw the dead raised. They saw demons come out of people. And just being around him and how much that supernatural influenced them. And whenever they planted the church, when Jesus ascended, they came in and planted that church. This was the church that, that experienced the power of God. You understand, before there was modern PA systems and all of that, that 3,000 were added to the kingdom in one day. That when an angel came and got Peter out of prison, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. As a matter of fact, when Peter was knocking at the door, the lady that saw him said, well, this is Peter's angel. The angelic being around and functioning, this wasn't anything crazy to them. The supernatural power of God that Peter's shadow was healing the sick and all these people came that were sick and it was just normal in the early church to see that somebody came sick and they left healed. And I'm believing God to take River of Life much deeper. I thank God for what we've seen, but there's much more. And there's got to be a corporate breakthrough. You know, it's one thing to just have a healing ministry and see some people healed. That's awesome. But I'm talking about a corporate breakthrough where the heavens are more open than they've ever been and it's like going deep. And I'm about to get into that here in a moment. Let me just tell a few more quick things out of this. I recall once three ladies worshiping in an angelic tongue whose faces and torso were concealed behind like a cloud. I could see their arms and hands outstretched, but the rest of them was enveloped in a cloud. 
when Francis would begin strumming this zither, you should look it up because it's just this little bitty instrument. So, I mean, you know, all these people worshiping this thing. She's, listen to this. He said it's as though heavenly instruments were added into it. You could hear violins. You could hear French horns. You could hear harps. You could hear trumpets. You heard angels singing with them. It was, it was octaves that are not humanly possible. And he said it was just this beautiful thing. He said we heard thunderings crash. We heard thunderings out of the heavens. We heard um, there was a swirling fog and sometimes a gold dust that you would see. He said in here, there's really no way to explain this on paper if you're not there to see it. And it reminds me of the Azusa Street Revival because as I read this, I'm thinking that this is very similar to what we've read and I've shared with you guys about those that were at Azusa Street that talked about it. At Azusa Street, that glory, they said whenever that fire and the fire trucks came, that there was the fire that enveloped the meetings, and they said it was like a pillar of fire. And they saw that there was like a pillar that went way up into the sky, but then there was something else like a pillar that came down from heaven. And he said as they talked about it later, that they figured that maybe it was angels that were trafficking back and forth, but they said nonetheless that that fire, when that was really strong like that in those meetings, he said that's when the great miracles would happen. And he said that was when Brother Seymour would get up and he would call upon people that were the sickest and, and they saw with their eyes like an arm grow completely out of fingernails formed, things like that. All right. So now I want to start moving toward a close, okay? So what made the golden candlestick different than the revivals in the 50s? You guys remember um, the great revivals of the 40s and 50s? It really began with William Branham in the 40s, and I believe kind of died out with A.A. Allen in around 1966. But it was during that time frame, there were great revivals. There were many, many people um, that were traveling ministers they would set up tents they had incredible miracles and and some of them uh, were amazing men of God and some of them really struggled and had problems but if you know anything about the revivals of the 50s this will make sense I can't you know go off into that too much but unfortunately there was a lot of pride and competition with some of them not all just some now, let me show you something because this is important for you guys to know. What was different with the golden candlestick and what was different with the revivals of the 50s? And how can we learn from this? The golden candlestick, the only reason we even know about them is because James Maloney was so touched in the meetings that all these many years later, later in his life, he wanted to share it publicly, so he wrote it in a book. But you and I would have never even heard of them. They sought absolutely no recognition from the world whatsoever. They only sought the recognition of the king. But in the revivals of the 40s and 50s, unfortunately, there was a lot of self-promotion and competition. There would be fights among some of the preachers on who had the biggest tent. That happened. Who would be who saw the greatest miracles some of what was going on with the miracles 
where instead of just bringing the Lord glory, it was almost like bragging, or y'all hear me, bragging about, you know, look what God did through me. Did y'all hear what I'm saying? So it's, it's, you have to be careful because there, there can be this self-promotion and even the testimonies of the healings and miracles can be presented in a way that it's bragging about yourself and your ministry as opposed to glorifying the Lord. And that was one of the big downfalls of the revivals of the 50s. <clears throat> Another thing that was at least interesting about it was the golden candlestick was by invitation only. It was a very small group and nobody, it wasn't open to the public. Not that there's anything wrong with being open to the public, but it just wasn't. And sometimes the deeper things, those that are going to go into the holy of holies and go deeper is not necessarily good for public consumption because outer court people will just blaspheme it and mock it and make fun and they'll say it's of the devil. Well, they sure like giving the devil a lot of glory and power, don't they? Because everything powerful is of the devil. They knew how to keep their mouth shut. The golden candlestick. They did not go around blabbing everything God did publicly. Are y'all hearing me? You need to make sure you know how to keep your mouth shut. Because sometimes when you share things you shouldn't be sharing to the wrong people, it's casting pearls before swine. The golden candlestick gave up any personal ambitions whatsoever. They wanted to serve the Lord in a place of great humility. But a lot, some of those, I probably shouldn't have put a lot here, but some of those in the 50s went to bed really late. They self-indulged with money, food, and even alcohol, and it ended, ended up costing them dearly. The golden candlestick was truly about worship and intimacy with the Lord, and everything was about Him. But some of those in the 50s had public ministries that at times were too much about the minister. I'm just trying to share some things that were positives and negatives so we can learn from it. Let me tell you that you really have to be careful that everything we do is a motive to bring Jesus glory. And it's never a motive to bring yourself glory or to try to self-promote. My wife and I have talked about this. I even tried to talk to one young man over and over about this. He was so caught up with self-promoting you know, it's, listen, it's not about that. When we die, none of that is going to matter. You know, the Apostle Paul said that we're all going to stand before the Lord and everything you've done is going to be there around you and it's either going to be like beautiful stones like diamonds and, and pearls and gold or it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. But when it goes through the fire of judgment, it's only going to be those, stone, those precious stones that are going to survive the fire. I'm going to tell you, there's some people on Judgment Day that are going to be standing in a pile of ashes. Everything they ever did for the Lord. They did great things, and everybody thought they were really something, but the motives of their heart was so much about them. Them getting the glory. Them getting the recognition instead of Him. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. How many knows motives is a big deal with God? And so here's the last couple of things I just want to share tonight. How many of you guys feel just, some of you I can tell, you just feel like something's stirring in you. You're hungry to go deeper. So I grew up in this area generally, in east of here. 
And I grew up in a Christian family. My, my parents really knew the Lord, loved the Lord, and lived a sincere Christian life. But to be honest, I did not see a lot of that, though. And those of you that's grown up around here, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. I saw so much around me of people that went to church and they professed Christianity, but they did not know the Lord. Hello? And they certainly did not live a righteous Christian life at all. They were sleeping around, partying, living in all kinds of sin. But yet they would go to church. And that's what I grew up in. And unfortunately, that really affected me. And I became kind of a product of this environment. I believe with all my heart that that's the prevailing spirit, the principality over this region of religious witchcraft. It's like a religion. People are religious but they're not necessarily Christian. Hello. Christianity is more than just saying, hey, yeah, I go to church. I am, you know, I'm not Muslim. I'm Christian. No, it's a born-again experience. It's a new birth. You know, it's not because your mom and dad are a Christian. It's not just because you were made to go to church as a kid. It's not just because you went to, you know, vacation Bible school. It's a born-again experience. It's a new birth. And when you're truly born of God, you will never be the same. You'll be given a new heart. You are different. You cannot continue to live the way you did before. And so I grew up and I was a product of this environment like some of you might have been. And my parents had us go to church, but I really did not truly know the Lord. I would describe my relationship with the Lord being like this. I knew about him and I was like, I knew the God of my parents, but I didn't really know him for myself, for real. I really know him. But yet my parents took us to a decent church for this region at that time. This was before the great revivals of the 90s. And, you know, there's all these people that, that are in the outer courts. And outer court churches just tell Bible stories. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, it's three songs, then it's this, then it's that, and you go home. It's a social club. We, we weren't really on that level. The church we went to was spirit-filled at least, uh, even though they sang hymns and it was you know, somewhat dead for the most part, but there was still the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there was still the message in tongues and interpretation. There was still prophecy. There was still the power of God that would come in at times. And I remember that there were some people that were miraculously healed. Um, every once in a while there'd be somebody like a demon manifest and leave them and and we'd have speakers come in and people be hit by the power of God and be all over the ground things like that so I mean at least you have that holy place experience but I didn't really have this encounter with the Lord that I needed for myself personally and I believe that some of that in part was that we were never taught about things like generational curses and things like that and there were definitely things with Freemasonry that needed to be cleared out it was a big deal and I remember later in life God dealt with that but that was an issue all of that that just not seeing so much I saw so much hypocrisy I was not really in a church where God was really moving really powerfully for us young people the way we needed it and I remember though that I had praying parents that really loved the Lord so Later on, I was around 18. It was January 95, so however old I was at the time. And 
I really gave my life to the Lord, but I knew this time I was really sincere about giving my life to the Lord. But I'm going to tell you that I knew I had to get out of the area because all my friends were partiers. It was just sin was everywhere. And I knew that I could not continue to hang out with them and live a Christian life. So I relocated. I moved to Dallas. And I had a couple friends, and we got a place. We lived here. And as I began to go, I began to pursue going to Bible school. But you got to understand, I was so young in the Lord. I'd come out of so much sin. I had dabbled in the occult. I was definitely sexually active. I, I was very involved with the party scene and in a lot of drinking, some mild drugs. I lived in so much sin. And nobody had taught about, you know, getting delivered from all your past, like getting that out of your life, like, a, like we do here, like a deliverance questionnaire and just and, and dealing with generational stuff. I didn't know. And as I was so young in the Lord, I really, now there was a love for God, a hunger for God. And now I had a born again experience for real, like a, a true encounter with God that I, I believe it was like around it when I was younger, but now it was something in my life for real. And I was still struggling though. I was struggling with the sins of the past. I was still, it felt like it was hard. And I remember that when I was young, that my friends, I, I went to Bible school, and some of my friends, now revival had broken out in Pensacola. Like Dr. Cho prophesied. Now, you know, he prophesied 93, 94. Now it's January, it's uh, 95, and I'm in school in the fall of, uh, I was in school in 96. So I was hearing about this now in 96, this great revival that was going on. And my friends were going there and coming back, and they were different. I mean, God was really touching them there. And I remember seeing some of them that they were different. There was even uh, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that, you know, maybe they were shaking when they would worship, you know, and stuff like that was going on. I'd never really seen that level. And, but I saw the change in their life. I saw that they were hungry for God, and they were really broken about their sin, and they really, that there was something totally different. And I knew that it had to be God, okay? And I saw such a work in them, and I told, I think it was, I told my mother I really wanted to go down there, but I didn't have anybody to go with me, so I wanted if she could help me figure out. I think it was just you and I, maybe my brothers or something. Anyway, so a group of us got together, and we drove down there. And I remember being there, and it was the weirdest thing to see all these people outside of church lined up waiting to get in with the doors open. And we got there, and people were just running in to get a seat. And I was up in the balcony, and the worship was awesome. But I'll never forget, man, the power of God that came into that place. I mean, it really was like an electricity in the atmosphere. It was, it was something. And Steve Hill, when he began to call sinners down, you had to be a hard man to not go down. As I was, I was a Christian, and I was sincere. I was going to Bible school. I still was trying to overcome a lot of things in my past, but I was still sincere. And I felt like I needed to go down there and get saved all over again. And I went down there and prayed. And I remember that some random altar worker prayed for me. And I remember the power of God hitting me. I, I was thrown back in the air, landed. All I remember is the Holy Spirit. I was baptized in a fire of the Holy Spirit. And something began to be ignited in my life. And I had a hunger for God from that day forward I'd never had before. And it's never died. There was something that happened. And out of that... Um, I was asked just to help out with this youth group. I was going to a small little church there. And, 
and they begin the young people began to sense that revival coming off and, and god began to move there but god had to still do a great work in me and so god began to take me through a personal journey because i was still struggling with the sins of my past and god had to teach me how to die to the flesh he had to teach me how to pray he had to help me get delivered from all that stuff and help me get the victory and he did he brought me through from around 1997 to around 2000 maybe two in that time frame god tucked me away and taught me so much and drew me into him so there's a place of victory but the anointing is what helps to destroy that yoke of bondage and i remember that god began to draw me to the dallas area and when i got here once again i saw a lot of that hypocrisy and God dropped in my spirit that he wanted me to name the ministry that I had at this time. I wasn't married. I was just kind of doing my own thing. And I felt that it was to be called fire and ice because of the scripture about you're lukewarm. You're either going to be hot or cold, you know. And I felt that because there was, there was a lot of hypocrisy. And I understood that because that was what I knew growing up. And that's what I dealt with too because that was so pervasive in the region. But now, after God had changed me, I had such a hunger to begin to see people really, you know, get out of that bondage. And so I had no intentions at all of this ever being a church. I simply just wanted to, to get out there on the streets. I wanted to see people saved. I wanted to see a place of worship and prayer. People could come and, and I, yeah, I could preach to them if they wanted me to and pray for them. And over time, it became necessary that it be this as a church. But that wasn't really my heart at the beginning. And I remember that God drew me. To, Steve Hill started Heartland back in 2003. And God drew me there. And Steve spent some time with me. He really prayed over me. And um, he was just really encouraging and a blessing. And he really helped start what you guys have here today by his encouragement, speaking into my life, praying over me. And um, even, even endorsing what I was doing. It really was a very encouraging time for me. He was that way. He loved to, to encourage young ministers to go, and to go after God. That would be, Steve would tell him, go after God with all your heart. So that was how this gradually birthed. But I remembered reading that in 2004, what I read to you from Rick Joyner, that he saw that there would be these hot coals from the fire that would begin to come together. They were few in number, but they would be messengers of power. And they would be hungry for more than church as usual. Once you've really had an encounter with God, you cannot be content and happy with dead, dry church. I'm just telling you. Some of you guys don't realize it because you haven't ever been there. You got saved in the river of life. It's all you've ever known. But I'm telling you, if you ever go somewhere else, there's going to be a yearning. If you end up somewhere dead and dry anyway, there's going to be a yearning for more of the Lord. And so I shared all this tonight. I shared these crazy stories about revival because I wanted you to understand that when revival comes, you're going to see people get saved you never thought would get saved. You're going to see healings and miracles increase in deliverances. Don't be surprised. We've seen even in River of Life, we have not seen nearly the fullness of what God's about to do. God's about to really come down. I'm telling you, you need to be ready. I'm trying to help people get ready. 
but we've still seen where the power of God came down so strong in certain meetings. There'd be somebody over here getting delivered of a demon. This person healed of something. This person laughing their head off. This person bawling their eyes out. And it's just like a holy explosion. And that's nothing compared to what's coming. This has all been just getting us ready. It's warming us up. And God has gradually been preparing River of Life over time for what's about to happen. Ruth Ward Heflin was taken up in the spirit in Jerusalem. And she said, I was shown the last day revival in America. And she said, I saw that eventually all of America be ablaze in the fires of revival. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And she said, once she said, I saw all these healings and miracles that were so powerful that even some of the news media, secular news media, had brought cameras to video what was going on because it was so powerful. And she said, once all of America was ablaze in the fires of revival, I saw that Dallas would be the hub or the epicenter. I'm trying to tell you that these things are drawing near. We've got to be willing to stand up for the Lord and we've got to guard our hearts and not get bitter, not get offended, not get lifted up with pride, not get rebellious. We've got to be willing to change. See, I'm like this. God, whatever you've got to do in me, do it. I don't have a problem with that. God said, I want you to change this. This, this isn't right. Said, Thank you for telling me. I, I repent. You know, I don't have a problem with that. I want God to tell me. I want to go deeper in his glory. But see, not everybody feels that way. And what's about to come with River of Life, I'm trying to tell you because I feel it burning in me. God's about to say, all right, I've been preparing you. I've been preparing you. I've been doing a work in you guys. Just like, for example, before the, the spring feast time, before Passover and before the fall feast time, I've had all of us. You know why God's been doing this? Because not everybody's going to go as deep as what God's calling us to go. And I've been calling us to times of prayer and fasting before these, these feast times that we humble ourselves and we get the sin out and we, we, we come together in agreement. And these have been powerful times. And at the end of these times, I say, guess what? We're going to have a time where we can deeply consecrate ourselves unto God. And I've been so pleased and so thankful that God has brought together a group of people that have the humility, they have the wisdom, and they have the hunger for God to be willing to do this. Because not every church you call some churches to a fast, and you have like two people that are participating. But anyway, everybody's been humbling themselves before God and we've been, we've been consecrating our lives and we'll come together at the communion table. And my wife and I go through and we anoint people with oil and we're asking God, deeply consecrate your people at Moses in Exodus 40, anointed the tabernacle. And I've said we're going to have a time of, of immersion, a time of water baptism if you just want to consecrate your lives. And I've been pleasantly surprised at the people that have humbled themselves before the Lord and said, Lord, I just want to be deeply consecrated unto you. But I've also been surprised at the level of God's power I have felt in that water and the healings that have happened there and the people that have been delivered of things. Why is this going on? Because God has been taking us beyond the outer court into the holy place. He's been consecrating us. He's getting us ready. And what's about to happen, and some people hearing this may say, wow, that sounds so radical. But the thing is that you guys are called to go deeper than a lot of the other people out there. So God is requiring us to do these things. You understand? 
we have to be deeply consecrated to get into the Holy of Holies. And there's coming a time when God is going to rip the veil open and he's going to say, cast the net on the other side of the boat. There's going to be a harvest and a revival explode in River of Life. It's coming and it's not that far off. So I'll write read one more awesome story here. I felt the emphasis tonight was on the word. I just feel like a burning in my spirit. Now with all that said, now that you guys know who James Maloney was, you know the golden candlestick, you understand his background. He had an open vision, which I've shared before, of people going into the Holy of Holies. This is coming to River of Life. Are you guys hungry for it? Are you guys ready? All right, this is out of his book called The Lord in the Fires. He said, we must come to a place of dissatisfied satisfaction, if I can phrase it that way, where there's a restlessness for more as you rest in the Holy Spirit. A burning desire to press beyond the veil of flesh to be consumed with the zeal of the Lord. Now he had a vision of the tabernacle. I'm going to read this. He said there was this pavilion and it represented the holy place. It wasn't overly ornate or fancy, but it wasn't dirty either. Oddly enough though, it wasn't the Old Testament time with a bunch of men in robes and like Moses beards and things like that. There was a few hundred Christians sitting there, maybe 400, and they were dressed in modern clothes. Many, if not most of them, were in need of some kind of a physical healing. I could see that they were hurting. Some of them had blind eyes and others deaf ears. There were tumors. There were crippling diseases. I could sense that they were eagerly anticipating ministry for their healing. And I knew behind us was the outer court. It was down a set of steps because this is a vision he was having, okay? And I thought that there were also people out there in the outer court in the sunshine in a warm, nice place. There were people out there that needed ministry. But here we were inside the holy place. It was lit by tall lampstands that emanated a warm light. The table of showbread was present. The altar of incense was there. And the incense filled the room. Don't misunderstand me. This was a beautiful place. But there were still sick people and suffering people. And I found that strange. This is the tabernacle of God. These were his people. Yet many were still suffering. An angel appeared and escorted me between the wall of the pavilion. And a row of seated people up to the front. Where there were two flaps that made the veil separating the holy place from the or the holy of holies from the holy place. Another angel was standing beside the flaps. These were the two cherubim. They reached out and lifted up the veil. And when they did, a warm flood of light came from the holy of holies like a wave of indescribable glory emanating out of that holy of holies into the holy place. It was so bright that it darkened the light of the lampstands. And it felt really, really good just to have this level of glory upon us. And some people had improved because of the glory emanating on them. Their health improved some. Yet, they seemed content to just sit in this level of God's presence, absorbing a portion of of his presence but they made no motion 
to go beyond the lifted veil. The angels that had lifted up the veil were beckoning us, inviting us to go deeper in the Lord. They were saddened at all the people that were just sitting there. And he said, I wondered to myself, are they scared? Do they feel unworthy? But he said, maybe some of them, yes. But he said, what I felt mostly was that they were weighed down by dullness. Let me tell you something. This is, dullness is dangerous. I, I have seen people in church that lost that edge. They lost that prophetic edge. They lost that fire they once had. I've seen it a lot. They, they, they're comfortable, comfortable out of church now. They'll come, but they don't come. They're, they're, they don't pray like they used to. They don't witness like these. They don't have that fire, that zeal. Something has dulled them. They were weighed down by dullness, a lack of understanding that lured them into complacency. I'm not minimizing their experience, but that level of encounter with God wasn't enough to see them completely free. And there was no excuse. The invitation was for everybody to come in and meet the source. And I said to myself, what, are you kidding me? He said, of course, I'm going in. So I walked toward the flaps and only three other people went with me. One was a man with a cane dragging his leg. Another woman had a walker. And last, there was somebody in a wheelchair. The moment we passed beyond the veil into the most holy place, words failed to properly describe the overwhelming awesome presence that bowled us over in that place. The light was not from the lampstands. It was not from the outside sunlight. It was the glory of God, the Shekinah. Well, I did not see the Father on his throne, I did see in the vision the 24 elders who were worshiping him. I saw bolts of fiery lightning. Um, I heard crashing thunder, sounds of trumpets. I saw royal tapestries beyond human description arrayed in colors that cannot be replicated on the earth. Everywhere was light, shafts of beams of God's glorious light emanating from the Father of light himself. Waves of God's glory rolled over us and we were fully immersed in a single greatest renewal experience I've ever had. It was so energizing, almost like God's love and his life were giving visible form in waves of light that swept over us. And then the shockwave hit us. We were bowled over, uh, fell out in the spirit, made like dead men. The anointing and the reverence was just too much to handle. We bask in this unrestrained glory for a little while. I stagger back to my feet. The angels reopened the flaps, letting out some of that fire heat back into the holy place. And when I exited the holy place, I saw all the people anticipating for me to minister to them. Somehow expressed the glory I had witnessed to them vicariously. They didn't want to go in. They wanted somebody else to pay the price to go in. They just want you to come out and help them. Hello. This is a really powerful vision. And I would say pretty accurate. It was as if they wanted the, to experience the glory of God from a distance. I was reminded of Exodus 33 when Moses and Joshua went into the tabernacle and every man stood at his tent door. They themselves did not want to go in. They were content with a secondhand experience from Moses. So these people in the holy place were blessed, yes, but it was only in measure. The angel led me now, now he just had this encounter with God. The angel led me past down out the steps to the outer court where I found maybe 15, 20 people waiting by the curb. They were unchurched, unsaved. Some of them were crippled, blind, deaf. They were sick. And as I stepped toward them, the angel Lord told me to minister to them, and I did. 
And it was an amazing expression of God's power and love. The demonized were delivered. All manner, manner of physical sickness was healed. Whatever they struggled with didn't matter. The Lord's grace was sufficient. They were praising God. They were baptizing the Holy Spirit. They began to praise God as their physical infirmities were healed. It was so awesome seeing wonderful breakthroughs and salvations um, right out there on the streets. This is where things are going with River of Life. Are y'all seeing what I'm talking about? God's about to pull the veil back. I hope people can handle it. I hope that you've prepared your heart. Because we're going in. And what's going to happen is, is people are going to have a major increase of, of these healings and this. And then people are going to be coming out of this and seeing it on the streets. When I was finishing ministering, the angel led me back inside past the waiting Christians and the flaps that were open a second time. Once again, the angel's inviting everybody to come in. And as they opened the flap, I saw the man's cane come flying out. <laughs> I saw the walker thrown out. I saw the wheelchair pushed out empty. It was then that I came out of the vision exhilarated and praising God as his power came over me, yet also disheartened that so many of the people remained in the holy place but went no further. See, those kinds of incredible miracles only took place in the holy of holies. I am convinced this is where we're coming to. People must come boldly into the holy of holies for themselves. Jesus rent the veil at the cross, and most Christians seem reluctant to really press in. I maintain that the majority of these great miracles will happen in the fullness of God's glory. And he went on to say, without me reading anymore, but he went on to talk about how there's always been a remnant throughout history that were hungry to go deeper in God than other people were. And that's true. I'm trying to tell people. I feel it burning in me. I remember Brother Kilpatrick, you hear his sermons before the Brownsville revival. He, he felt it coming. He just felt this urgency in, in his sermons, and the people were just, you know, they weren't really there yet. But I'm telling you, something's about to break forth in River of Life, and I'm trying to get people ready. That God's been warming us up in his presence, but he's really about to come down in power. I mean, his glory is going to hit the place, and we need to be ready to handle that. And God's wanting to see us go out on the streets and take revival on the streets. He's wanting to be able to bring people in here that they can receive from the Lord. There's a few places like River of Life out there that have been prepared for this time. But see, this is a place like what Rick Joyner saw, where people that have not felt comfortable with church as usual have been gathered to worship. But yet he said these messengers of power are smaller in number. See, it dwindles down those that are in the outer court to those who will go in the holy place. Just like this vision, there was 400 people, but only, what, four went into the holy of holies? That's kind of how it is. But I'm hungry to go deeper, and this ministry is going deeper. And when we do, it's going to break things open for a supernatural harvest. So here's what I close with. God is about to just mark it down, get ready. I don't know when. But God is sending his angels a breakthrough. He's going to break through. He's going to help break us into where we need to be. There's about to be supernatural provision financially to get the place we need. There's about to be breakthroughs where things, where people 
have been damaged somehow in life by the enemy, God's going to begin repairing that damage. Where things that have been stolen in life are going to be restored. Where things that the devil has put in people's lives are taken out. And there's going to be breakthroughs, major breakthroughs. And God is going to cause River of Life that this time that people have humbled themselves and they've consecrated their lives unto God, I'm telling you, God saw it and it meant something to him. Because not everybody will do that. That people humbled themselves and prayed and fasted before him and they, they were willing to really consecrate their lives and repent. And I'm going to tell you, man, God has been preparing us to go deep. And the Lord is about to rip that veil and take us deep into the glory. And when that happens, that, that harvest field is going to open up that he has for us. It's all in the works, and it's around the corner. But it's because, just like the Moravians and just like the Golden Candlestick, God has been using River of Life to be a hub of worship and prayer to prepare for this. It's the prayer that has opened the way for him. And when it comes, we've got to steward this thing well. We've got to keep prayer at the forefront. All right, so I want to go ahead and listen. Let this stir you up tonight. I put the scripture at the bottom of this where it talked about on the road to Emmaus, the disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us? How many felt a burning within you tonight? It's like this hunger to go deeper. You feel just something stirring in you. It's because God's calling us deeper in him. Well, let's go ahead and shut down recordings. And we're going to pray for people who want prayer, but I want us right now, if we would, I want us to dim the lights and I want people to pray. I want you just to find a place where you're at to talk to the Lord. And Sandy, if you could just turn up that CD for me, that number five is fine, just something in the background. But I want y'all to pray. I want you to please hear me tonight because I feel like God is watching us. How many are hungry to go deeper? How many are serious about it? How many are really truly serious about going deeper? Serious enough like what these prophecies and things talked about that I'm crucified with Christ it's not I who live but Christ living through me that you're serious enough about going deeper in God that you're going to repent of anything you need to repent of that we're asking him please come move in power to be more how many are hungry to go deeper talk to him tonight Lord change me whatever you need to cleanse in me whatever you need to change in me Lord we pray that tonight come do it get us ready for what's coming in every way help us to have your heart and your mind we're not satisfied with church as usual
this tonight. Just get in a place where you're really comfortable. And I want you to really help me pray tonight because I feel like God, is, His eyes are on us tonight. I want us to really ask Him, are you sincerely, I need people helping me pray about this because the Lord's watching. Are we really sincerely hungry to go deeper? Are we really willing to repent of anything we need to? Are we really willing to pay the price of being persecuted for revival? And to press into the deeper things of God, to be a remnant.
just going to do this for a while right now until I feel God's done. Okay, I'm going to turn off the mic, but just seek Him tonight. Pray, just press into Him.